Good morning. And I'm representing Gen X, the sort of the, the long forgotten and, and suffering uh, generation. Um, but very excited to talk to you this morning uh, about uh, something really interesting that's happening in a, in a kind of complex and turbulent world. Um, it's exciting to be here on Fridays for Future in particular. Uh, I know there'll be sort of marches around the world for the rest of the day today. Um, this has been ongoing, it's something that's absolutely necessary, but we also, along with taking our feet to the street and, and <clears throat> you know, going for direct action around changing climate change, we also need some approaches and some structures and some tools to enable people to lead the way uh, to a, a successful transition. So I wanna talk a little bit about that this morning, but also talk about it in a specific context. Um, and I also wanna say that the things that we're talking about here are some personal experience from the work that my colleagues and I do, uh, but basically looking at it from our point of view and, and thinking about the future in an interesting and very challenging part of the world and culture. Um, those of you who have had basic geography, you might be able to, to recognize um, the, uh, the part of the world that's sort of depicted here, but imagine in just a couple of decades, maybe not even a couple of decades, that uh, the average daytime temperature outside uh, is not um, 28 or 30 or 35 or 40, but you might be looking at 50 C, 50 Celsius, 50 centigrade um, as an average daytime outdoor temperature. These are the forecasts for the Persian Gulf, the Arabian Gulf, the Middle East area that's depicted here um, by 2050. Um, potentially looking at four degrees of average uh, temperature increase. Now you can imagine not, not just the sort of the shocking experience of what that might be like to walk outside. And if you've been there lately, I've, I've been in the region when we're looking at daytime temperatures of 43, 44. It's quite shocking to the human body, but basically people can't survive outside uh, for more than a few minutes without uh, some kind of protection and life support. Um, think about what that does to uh, things like uh, the ocean uh, that's nearby. Some of these charts actually show you, I think the row on the top, um, that the average sort of seawater temperature rises along with the air temperature, completely devastating things like ocean chemistry, um, wiping out the ability to do fishing, um, to, to uh, basically use clean water from these sorts of sources. Um, so we're actually looking, if we continue on the similar track that we're on right now for a region like uh, the Middle East, by the middle of this century, quite devastating uh, impacts just on a kind of statistical level if we do nothing. At the same time, you have a region that's right now heavily dependent on uh, the extraction of natural gas, the extraction of oil, and not just those industries and the, the revenues that they provide, but also all of the sort of secondary and tertiary effects of uh, relying or at least having some dependence on those uh, revenue sources, but also things like logistics, um, the exchange of uh, goods and services, um, travel hubs, all of those sorts of things that sort of come in this part of the world. But at the same time, think about how do you actually sunset that industry? How do you actually stop uh, without creating kind of catastrophic economic effects in the near term getting away from those sources of energy and transitioning. And imagine you have the ability actually to, to be building and deploying, even today in the present, something like a 5,000 megawatt solar park, one of the largest in the world. This is the Mohammed bin Rashid solar park in the UAE. So you're sort of a generation that's stuck between 
um, the, 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 the prosperity that was brought by previous generations in terms of development, taking an area of the world from essentially pearl fishing, uh, and here I'm talking specifically about the UAE and even more specifically about Dubai, from uh, 50 years ago, basically a pearl fishing and uh, small commerce region with very little built environment uh, outside of domestic homes, um, to a place where you have massive skyscrapers, tremendous affluence, uh, successful industries, but you also know, based on just some of the things I've talked about already, that this has to come to an end, that this has to be um, basically not just dialed down, but actively transitioned and actively planned away from. Uh, when you think about running a financial center, for example, that deals with the flow of currencies, foreign currencies, banking, um, commodities, gold, precious metals, all of these sorts of things that you know can't continue to be the, the sort of resource for your future, you have to find a way to get away from that. Yet at the same time, you also are surrounded by the ability to, um, to fund and develop and deploy some of the most amazing new innovations and technologies. If you don't recognize this, this is, this is a, a rendering of what a Hyperloop control center might look like. Sort of air traffic control for a sophisticated network of travel via tube. Um, the, the, the idea, the plan that Elon Musk put forward uh, a number of years ago is actually being prototyped and developed not just in other parts of the world like the Netherlands where I come from, uh, where I'm based, but also in places like Dubai and Abu Dhabi where they're looking at eliminating some of the travel between cities uh, over great distances by putting in place these modes of transport. And you also sort of need vision that can, that can inspire people to greater heights. What have we done in the West over the past 50 or 60 years? One thing we've done is develop a space program. A space program that, as John Kennedy said when we launched it, sort of inspired us to do the things that were, were hard to do and also that would you know, drive or, or generate an entire uh, generation or two of uh, new scientists, new experts, new geologists, new life sciences experts, new bioscience experts. So for the UAE, uh, they are planning to launch in next year, the year, I think, uh, 2021, the HOPE Mars probe uh, that will reach Mars in, in the year following that. Uh, and that's given them the opportunity to develop a space program, not just to uh, explore the sorts of uh, possibilities of you know, near-Earth space and uh, interplanetary probes, but even thinking generationally, we just had an expert on stage talking about generations, generations sort of operate on a 20, 25 year basis. But imagine thinking ahead 100 years uh, and planning for the, the sort of innovations and inspirations that can happen in 100 years by exploring the idea of, of developing habitable colonies on other planets. Like in this case, this is a, 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 a rendering of the Mars colony, a sort of Mars uh, habitation um, that the UAE Space Agency is thinking about. Um, and this is not done necessarily only to think about how we actually put living humans on other planets, but really to address the problems that we have in the here and now and to address some of the environmental issues that we talked about a few minutes ago, which is the, the types of solutions that might be developed to, to enable sustainability uh, on another harsh planet uh, with very low levels of moisture, extraction of water, and the, the difficulty that's presented in, in generating oxygen and growing plants and doing, developing agriculture, all of those tools that are being developed for this type of situation can be brought back or, or utilized here in the near term in Earth. And you would think that there are a lot of countries that are, you know, right now have leaders who are scrambling around thinking long term and putting in place 
the formal means or formal methods of, uh, of constructing and imagining possible futures. But as you can see on this map, it's actually not all of the white ones. It's the sort of the, the pink ones that are hidden here. I mean, it's 20, 2020 almost, and we have very few countries in the world that are putting in place formal structures to actually uh, contemplate, collect information about, uh, develop scenarios for, and deliver on futures that are viable, sustainable, and, uh, and uh, basically will provide us with some quality of life over the next 100 years. But you'll notice also something kind of interesting about the types of countries that are most in the forefront of doing this. They tend to be, one, small. <laughs> so small that in some cases, in the case of Singapore, I have to sort of draw a small circle around it and magnify it for you. They tend to be sitting in very tricky parts of the world. Uh, whether it's you know, the Netherlands basically sitting a, a large percentage of the country below sea level, uh, Finland sitting uh, up against a, a, uh, a neighbor who hasn't always been friendly to it over the past few centuries, um, Singapore basically sitting in an area in, the, in Southeast Asia between several countries that it doesn't always have friendly relationships with, next to the sort of massive sphere of influence in the gravity well of China geopolitically and economically. And also, a country, if you've been looking at Singapore for the past week or so, is basically exposed to massive amounts of air pollution generated by the haze that's coming from burning in the country next door. So if you're in these sorts of countries, and the UAE is sort of situated in the middle here, um, and also quite a tricky neighborhood, um, the Persian Gulf and the Arabian Sea area is often not out of the news around geopolitical instability, you need some sort of means of not just um, throwing a, a kind of moonshot uh, to change the trajectory of the country, but actually a more systemic program that can enable the next generation of leaders to have the tools and approaches necessary to develop the kinds of futures that will be needed no matter what conditions begin to emerge. And about um, six or seven years ago, the government of the UAE and the government of Dubai specifically um, decided to kind of change tack and uh, basically, you know, develop its own internal future uh, capacity building, a sort of future planning capability in a way that's unique from the rest of the world. Not a kind of slow, policy-driven, bureaucratic, you know, long study uh, uh, program, but something that would en enable leaders, young leaders, people who are coming up through the economy in different parts of industry and the government who are in their 20s and 30s, to um, essentially design futures and take on the capabilities that specialists like myself and my colleagues um, have for our own work uh, and put those tools in the hands of the entire civil service, everyone across government, and basically make them hundreds of futurists spread throughout the entire uh, um, sort of mechanism of, of government there. Uh, and so they set up a thing called the Dubai Future Foundation. And within the Dubai Future Foundation, um, a, an entity was created called the Dubai Future Academy. In about 2016, we were invited to uh, propose a program to help develop um, the, the sort of skills and the capabilities and future sensing capacity uh, of people who are working across all of those ministries. To think not just about the futures that were sitting directly ahead of them, the plans that they had put in place, the long-term strategies they may already have on paper, the, what we would consider to be the probable futures ahead of them, but also to consider the things that were sitting just outside of that, the plausible futures that might be presented um, where a technology might not emerge or uh, the climate might shift in an unexpected way 
or there might be disruption in economy or business models that change the landscape for them. But even wider than that, to begin to, to, to pay attention to, to contemplate and consider the possible futures that might emerge for them. And through that process, to be able to map the most successful way through based on the goals of the country at that time, uh, to enable its citizens, the people who are living there, and also the people who are dependent on it, or even to become a net exporter of uh, future technologies and services that could help the rest of the world exist sustainably. And the decision was taken to actually not just, you know, put this, this program within uh, a kind of, you know, dry government building, uh, but to put it itself inside of, a, of an experiential prototype of the future. The academy program that we work on actually sits within the world's first 3D printed office building. Uh, it looks like a marshmallow, and if you've been to Dubai, you might have seen it if you whizzed past in a taxi. Um, but it's basically it, itself a kind of future laboratory. It was 3D printed um, over a, a period of a couple of weeks, assembled in place, and, and then basically kind of become part of the landscape, but it's also a sort of visual inspiration. And in that building, uh, we work with leaders from across you know, education, healthcare, environment, public safety, the space program that I mentioned before, dozens and dozens of different entities, not just to help those individual groups begin to identify the important drivers of change or the, the trends or sort of be sensitive to signals of change that they need to be able to pay attention to and adapt to, but to bring those ideas together, not just as individual uh, government departments or units, but to start to communicate across the entire civil service, across the entire government and the private sector to get definitions right, to understand when you say trend and I say trend, are we talking about the same thing? Um, and to begin to, to, to identify the enormous number of issues and opportunities and risks that they're facing, things like security, air pollution, traffic, um, you know, human safety, sustainability, emerging technologies, all of these areas. And we spend time with them giving them the ability, not for us to deliver to them a set of trends that we think are important sitting in our position in the West, but to help them be able to identify the critical trends that they may be facing based on change across all of these sectors, political, economic, social, technological, things like how do we deal with um, the development of our economy and the, the sort of survival of our people and people across the region when we're dealing with the impacts of climate change and you have things like ocean dead zones that transform um, the, the sort of economy that we have available to us. Or things like food insecurity, which has already for decades been an issue in the region and has already sparked conflict. Um, the Syrian civil war is basically, uh, you can trace it back to food insecurity uh, that uh, basically emerged in the region after the, the global financial crisis based in part on changes in commodity prices driven by global warming and, and climate change. But the most important part of all of this for them is, is something we think of as collaborative sense-making. How do you actually get together with other people and not just use the future or sort of go with the future idea that you have, but begin to, to bring that together with your colleagues, with people who think differently from you, uh, with people who have very different experiences from you, and begin to synthesize that information down so that you have uh, an agreed base of what you understand the future to be. And this is not as easy as you might think it is, but it's also where the sort of critical uh, insights begin to emerge when you're, you are developing kind of future landscapes or future plans. And also comparing what our conceptions of the future are. 
If I went to each one of you right now and asked you what you think the future is going to be in 2030, you would have radically different answers. You might sort of have um, you know, large macro patterns in what you think the future might be like, but even your understanding of what I mean by the future could be quite different. So getting everyone in the same sort of vocabulary, the same grammar, and the sort of a common language source is quite critical, because you may find out that the person who's operating down the hall from you, or who controls half of your budget, or who may be delivering on the plan that you're developing has a wildly different understanding of what the future might be. So getting those aligned is quite critical. Then a further step beyond that, teaching people how to make systemic connections, teaching leaders of the future basically how to understand how all of their individual departmental ministry initiatives, uh, grand sort of plans that are developed uh, in many different places across the city and across the region actually impact each other. How do you draw the lines between those innovations or those ideas or those expenditures or uh, those understandings of the rights or, or responsibilities of future generations and begin to understand how they actually come together, where they work together and where they actually clash before you, you set about delivering those. And then beginning to explore the impacts of them. What happens when we make this change? If we're going to take 50% of the, the private vehicles off the street and replace them with public transport that is fully electric or fully hydrogen, what are the secondary and third, sort of third order impacts of that? Um, it's amazing how quickly you begin to find out that there were things you never even considered, risks that you weren't mapping, opportunities that might be hidden when you begin to explore these secondary and tertiary impacts. And then I think the most kind of critical piece here is then taking the visions that emerge from these sort of mappings of the future and socializing them with each other, basically sharing them with other people and engaging other people immediately, not just in a PowerPoint presentation or uh, a kind of you know, printed study, but how do you actually make an experiential future that communicates um, these visions that you may have and prototype possibilities and actually stretch the kind of boundaries of, 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 of ideas that you can, that you can use. Um, some of the projects that have come out of the work that we've done there, for example, are, um, you, would, you might not imagine uh, coming out of that region, but one example was um, some young women that we worked with from the Space Agency and the Customs Bureau working together to imagine not a kind of collision of their two departments, but what, what would happen if we actually had an international environmental court uh, where you could enforce um, environmental policy or enforce international environmental law in the same way that we enforce international criminal law. Um, if a country is given a certain mandate to change its air pollution levels or clean up its energy mix and doesn't do that, could you actually take these people to court? And what would that procedure look like? So beginning to imagine the sort of pr future processes that may not actually be real, but help us think more concretely about a future where these things are possible. Um, we talked about the Hyperloop a few minutes ago. Um, you may have seen the sort of the pictures of the Hyperloop prototypes sitting out in the desert in the US or in the UAE, but we don't really think about, we're actually within the sort of five or 10 year envelope of developing and deploying that. What does it actually mean to, um, to be a passenger on that? How do you actually deal with the small mundane details of onboarding and clearing security and transporting cargo and all of these sorts of things. Making short films that explore that, that actually allow these people who will be leading um, government in the future to embody those futures and understand them more deeply. 
Um, this is actually a, 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 an element of a project that was exploring, right now Dubai has um, interne um, an, an internet city and a media city and a banking zone and all of these sort of specialty zones that are set out uh, to draw innovation from different sectors, but imagine a near future where you have a genetic or a genomic zone and you're trying to attract those sorts of companies to come and develop um, new solutions for healthcare to your region. Uh, imagine what it might be like, so for example, the UAE has a very high incidence of thalassemia, uh, a blood condition that, that actually gets in the way of some couples marrying uh, and has, sort of creates problems within society there. This is actually a box imagining what your future baby might look like once you've passed a successful treatment for thalassemia, but it also explores um, the, the sort of role that government might have to play in ethically tricky situations to allow them to sort of identify the key questions now rather than getting into that future and finding that they're sort of stumbling into um, some difficult ethical grounds. Or things like mental health. You know, given all of these transitions and turbulence, how do you actually identify the kind of key mental health support for people? Uh, and what would those programs look like? How would you actually help people deal with the mental stress of having to, to deal with the transitions that are happening in this time period? And embodying futures of healthcare, um, talking people through the sort of almost in a service design level, the ability to, um, to, to use certain nanotechnologies to uh, support or improve medical conditions in their body. Or actually, this is a, a piece from a short video where a number of young women were exploring the, the job transition difficulties of moving from a petroleum-based economy into things like biofuels. And by going through those processes on a kind of human scale, help them understand where some of the barriers and difficulties might emerge so they can begin to, to contemplate um, sort of strategies and plans around it. And this actually flips around the way that government usually works, which is to you know, do some exploratory research, to go out and do policy research and development, uh, to, to very slowly and carefully select a series of targets that they might uh, go after to uh, develop policy for and eventually deploy those and just either support them or get rid of them. But in this case, you're actually putting um, prototyping and demonstration first. You're actually taking on more risk uh, and trying those futures out at a very small scale in a sort of safe sandbox before you're, you are, um, before you're actually delivering it in the real world. So the key things that we try to work with these leaders on is uh, number one, becoming comfortable with uncertainty. Typically, government leaders are, are punished uh, for, for not knowing, right? This is the sorts of things that we don't like about our government leaders. If you don't know the answer to something, what are you doing there? But coming to the sort of futures that I was describing earlier, we're going to have to become much more, much more comfortable with uncertainty and uh, find ways to deal with it in a constructive fashion. And use different tools and methods to actually enable us to have a, a kind of prosthetic, a support a scaffolding structure for thinking about complexity. If you take the average kind of government leader, young leader today, and put, you know, throw them into these difficult situations, um, uh, you find that often they don't have the sort of the, the mental means or the, the knowledge that's necessary to even imagine a, a future in detail enough that they can develop successful plans for it. So by giving them the sort of scaffolding and language and the tools to, to model these potential futures, it gives them a much better method of thinking about the kinds of complexities they'll be facing. And then the last piece of this, I think, is connecting imaginaries. So these, these kind of 
um, interesting future ideas and concepts and experiences that they can imagine to develop policy around and, or to develop new products and services around. We have to find a way to tie those back to the present, as I was talking about earlier, and connect those to opportunities as well as responsibilities. Yes, we can go out and, and, and create a new uh, genetic-free zone to you know, draw innovation into this area, but that also comes with a very, very high degree of responsibility uh, and ethical awareness. And how do you actually make, allow them to make those connections to put in place uh, the elements necessary today to build a successful long-term future? Without these tools in place, we typically think on a straight line and imagine only linear futures. And we have to find ways to open that up and allow people to deal with uncertainty, to give the leaders of the future, if we want them to help us or to enable us to make change of the type that we're sort of protesting for and talking about today, then we need the tools in place to enable those leaders to, to guide that change and to smooth the path in front of us and to enable us to, to reach a more successful, sustainable, inclusive uh, future in the generations ahead of us. Thank you. Now, um, we're actually going to move to the next talk here, and I'm actually incredibly pleased to introduce uh, the next speaker, who is uh, Sophie Howe, uh, who, as she will tell you, is the future, the Commissioner for Future Generations for uh, the Nation of Wales. Uh, I found out about her, I guess, about six or nine months ago in doing some research, and I came across this position and uh, thought it was an amazing idea, uh, not just that we're the types of things we were talking about in terms of putting tools and plans in place, but to actually have a person who is representing uh, the interests of future generations uh, in the, the nation of Wales, the country of Wales. So Sophie, would you please come up and join us? Thank you. Um, or as we say in Wales, Dioch and Vaur and Borada. That's good morning um, in Welsh. Um, I want to start by asking you to um, take a look at this image. Um, it's an image that caught my attention on Facebook. I'm of the generation that's still on Facebook, posting those multiple slightly uh, misfocused uh, photos rather than the perfectly curated ones on um, Insta. But it caught my attention um, because I started reading the, uh, the caption and it was posted by a mum in the US. And she said, I took this picture and I was about to send it to my husband who was in work to say, look what she's up to now. And that caught my attention. I've got five children. Um, I've done similar things. Look what they're up to now. My favorite one was the entire uh, tub of nappy cream um, on the head of my two-year-old. If you've ever tried to get that stuff off, it's an absolute nightmare. Um, but actually, um, when I started reading down, um, this image wasn't what it seems, because what Mum said on Facebook is when she asked a little girl what it was that she was doing, she found out that she was actually practicing for a lockdown drill. She was practicing what they should do um, when a shooter came into the school. This is a four-year-old um, in kindergarten, and this is uh, something that the entire school uh, do uh, once a month to make sure that they are prepared. Now, there was global outrage about this. Of course, as Europeans, um, this is absolutely awful and terrible to us. We cannot understand how the US are in this position. 
how instead of doing the very obvious, which I think to us is to have gun control, they are instead teaching their four-year-olds how to deal with the consequences um, of the inevitable happening. And of course, by creating this as a new norm, they're absolutely complicit in creating that very future. So you're probably wondering what this has got to do um, with being a well-being of future generations commissioner for Wales, um, and why this is a specifically American problem, and what is the relevance um, here to us today? Well, what about this young girl? Oh, wrong way, sorry. Okay, what about this young girl? What is it that we're doing and creating for her future? Are we just planning um, to mitigate the impact of climate change on her and her generations? Are we just building our flood uh, defences? Are we planning for food security? That's absolutely what we're doing and we have been doing. And she's here um, and she's calling us out. And quite rightly, she's calling us out because our generation are absolutely complicit in creating a future of global warming, a very dire future where we have only 11 years left to save the planet. And she's absolutely right in calling us out because we've known for a long time that climate change is coming and we've done nothing about it. Since Al Gore published his first Inconvenient Truth, since the UN published their first framework on climate change back in the 1990s, our generations have put more carbon into the atmosphere than at any other time. So we cannot say um, that we didn't know. And we keep doing the same thing. Now surely is a time um, not to just keep doing the same things better, not to think that we can tech ourselves out of a crisis, that we can build ourselves out of a crisis, but actually not to just do the same things better, but to do better things. As Einstein said, we cannot solve our problems with the same level of thinking that we use to create them. And I think one of our biggest problems is this, this well-known quote, we have somehow generated this idea which has captivated uh, the minds of the entire world that everything is about the economy, that everything will be solved by economic growth, that GDP, productivity, is the most important thing that a government can get right. But actually, if we think about that, slight grammatical change there, if you think it's all about the economy, that's stupid, because actually it's about well-being. When we see 62 of the richest people in the world owning the same amount of wealth as over 3 billion of the poorest people in the world, we can't possibly have our economic model right. Where we see the environmental degradation that has been caused by our economic model, where a handful of emitters are causing the biggest carbon emissions, we cannot possibly have our economic model right. So it's stupid to think that we have. Even as far back as the 1960s, Robert Kennedy was saying the problem with GDP is that it measures everything in life except that which makes life worthwhile. And if I asked you, what is it that makes your life worthwhile? I'm sure you wouldn't say the economy. You probably wouldn't even say it's whether I can get a doctor's appointment on time. You probably wouldn't say it's about whether I can get in my car and get to my job uh, quickly. You'd probably say the same as me. These are my five children. 
Um, the biggest one there, Morgan, there's always one. It's incredibly difficult to get a sensible picture um, of the five of them together. But this is the thing that makes life worthwhile. It's family. It's your sense of connection to community. It's whether you can come out of your house and feel safe. It's whether you have a warm and safe house to live in. It's whether you can take advantage of the natural environment. It's whether you can breathe um, clean air. All of those are the things that make life worthwhile. And we're completely ignoring that fact. Even when we think about, certainly in the UK, how we plan our healthcare system, 50% of our budget goes into a national health service. And I love the national health service. Um, we're completely um, in love with the national health service in the UK. The problem is it's not a national health service. It's a national illness service. What we do is we treat people when they're ill. And we know that only 15% of a nation's health and well-being is actually dependent on a healthcare system. The other 85% is elsewhere. It's about those relationships. It's about the quality of your home. It's about the quality of your environment. It's that sense of holistic well-being. And that's where we're trying to do things differently in Wales. We've tried to legislate, that's very difficult, legislate for a vision. Legislate to protect the interests of future generations and legislate to require our policymakers, our government, our local authorities and municipalities, our health boards and other public institutions to focus on the well-being of current and future generations. This is what the United Nations said when our law, the Well-Being of Future Generations Act, was passed in Wales in 2015. We hope what Wales is doing today, the world will do tomorrow. We are the only country in the world that has legislation to protect the interests of future generations, and I am the only uh, future generations commissioner in the world, um, something that I'm very proud of. Um, my job, as set out in law, is to act as the guardian of the interests of future generations. No pressure. There <laughs> There was a similar role created in Israel um, a number of years ago. That commissioner, and I've come to know him quite well, Shlomo, um, was uh, so challenging to the government. He had quite significant powers to veto legislation going through the parliament. He was so challenging to the government that they abolished him and his position after its, uh, his first term. So um, some difficult uh, paths to navigate there. But my role is independent. My job is to hold our government to account on how they're meeting the aspirations of our legislation. And we have big aspirations. So I don't know if you can see this, but this is the vision of the Wales that we want to see. These are our seven national well-being goals. They were devised through a national conversation with thousands and thousands of people across Wales. They were devised, taking into account the UN Sustainable Development Goals, and I particularly want to pull out our definition of a prosperous Wales. And this is a definition that's not just in some aspirational policy document, which will come and go and change as governments change. This is um, our vision of an economy set out in law. And it's an innovative, productive, low-carbon society, which recognizes the limits of the global environment and therefore uses resources uh, efficiently and proportionately, including acting on climate change, and which develops a skilled and well-educated population in an economy which generates wealth and provides employment opportunities, allowing people to take advantage of the wealth generated through securing decent work. Now, not the catchiest of definitions, but let's just pick out the key phrases there, and let's talk about what's not there. 
So low-carbon society uses resources efficiently and proportionately. Skills and well-educated population, decent jobs, not just any old jobs. That's our vision for the economy um, in Wales, and that's what we're striving towards. No mention of the purpose of the economy and the purpose of what the state does being to increase and improve GPA, being to make the rich richer um, and that income um, inequality gap uh, bigger. And when you look at that in combination with the other six well-being goals, and the duty on all our public bodies is to set objectives which maximise their contribution to all of these goals. What we've seen in governments and policymaking in the past is this silo mentality, short-term thinking, um, departmental thinking. If we'd had a plan for a healthier Wales, it would have been shipped off to the National Health Service to deliver on everyone being healthy, when, as I said, we know that actually the things that make people healthy are things that happen in housing, they're things that happen in environment, they're whether we have decent jobs or whether we have low-paid um, jobs and so on. And then the second part of the framework of our legislation is that our public bodies have to demonstrate that they're deploying these five ways of working. They have to demonstrate that they are planning for the long term. They have to demonstra uh, demonstrate that they are preventing problems from occurring or getting worse. They have to integrate their thinking, so this is recognising the positive or ne uh, negative knock-on consequences of, um, across all of the goals when they're taking decisions. They have to collaborate with each other and with other, uh, uh, other sectors, the private sector, the voluntary sector, civic society, and so on. And they have to involve citizens. Now, none of that is rocket science. In fact, the minister who passed this legislation described it as the Common Sense Act. Um, unfortunately, common sense in these days isn't always that common, so that's why uh, we have legislated in Wales. So what does this mean for the future? Well, our government and our public policy institutions have to um, take into account future trends and scenarios. That's incredibly difficult, isn't it? No one can uh, predict the future. In fact, there's not a future, there are futures. Um, a range of different scenarios and possibilities. From flying cars, we know that we're likely, you know, well, we're already seeing automation and artificial intelligence. What will that mean to the human race where we may have or likely to have in future humans, enhanced humans and AIs? How will we all interact together? What will that mean in terms of the way that society um, operates? All of these are challenging things for the, the future, but things that we need to be thinking about and preparing for now because there are a number of lessons that we can learn from the past where we didn't do that, where we knew, but we did not take the action. So smoking, we knew long, long, long before we did anything about smoking, about the damages uh, that that was causing to health. Why didn't we? Back to that economic model. When we think again, and this is back to the economic model, the banking crisis and the global financial crisis, we knew long before we did anything um, about that, that this was going to cause significant issues. We did nothing about it. Weinstein, they knew, people knew exactly what was going on. We did nothing about it. And if you think from those mistakes of the past to the things that we now know about and we're not taking action, so if we think about obesity, I don't know what the rates are here, but in Wales, 58% of our adult population are overweight or obese. 26% of children under five are overweight or obese. That's a massive challenge coming down the line at us. 
Um, these issues about automation, artificial intelligence, what that will mean for the human race, and of course, climate change. And despite signing up to Paris, despite warm words, pardon the pun, um, we are not taking anywhere near the action that we need to take to deal with this existential threat. And also, we're probably not asking our future generations. We're not talking to them effectively. I know it's challenging because they talk a different language to us. Um, they talk in emojis. We've heard um, earlier on today um, the skills that they have digitally. I'm just going to share with you this little um, text exchange uh, from my son, who is 19. Now, I've been called many things um, in the past. Um, I'm not always popular because my job is to call out uh, people who I think are doing the wrong thing for the future, but I've never before been called G-Dog. Now, <laughs> as you can see there, who the hell is G-Dog? You. Right, what does G-Dog mean? I'm, I was, I'm not sure whether I'm more concerned to find out that it was called... G-Dog stands for gangster dog. Now, I'm not sure whether I'm more worried about being called a gangster or a dog, um, but <laughs> do you know what? Whatever he calls me or they call us, we all have a moral responsibility to ensure that we are not landing them um, in this. So we have an opportunity to change the narrative, to change the way that we do things, and that opportunity is ours. We surely must be in a position where our role in life, where the role of our governments, the role of what we do as individuals is to leave the world in a better place than we found it. So during the course of listening to me for these 15 minutes or so, about two and a half thousand babies will have been born across the world. What are you going to do to make sure that you are the generation not to secure their fate, but to secure their future? Thank you. Thank you, Sophie. Um, this has just begun to scratch the surface of the, the, all of these sorts of topics, and hopefully it's opened up a lot of new questions and ideas for you. To keep the, sort of the, the train moving today, we are actually going to have a conversation at 3 p.m. Uh, at Panorama between Sophie and myself and our moderator, Monique van Dusseldorp. So if you'd like to, to join us for a longer conversation, talk more in depth about uh, the types of issues that we both brought up this morning. Please do join us at 3 p.m., but thank you again, Sophie. Thank you. Yeah.